0: You're listening to Engineered Workweek Audio. For more resources, visit engineeredworkweek.com. Where are the men? We need God-honoring, culture-shaping, world-changing, excellent men, professional men, godly men to go into the marketplace, to go into the world, ready to honor God with their life and their work. Where are the men? Sam said the uh, rookies always forget to unmute, so got it. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm i really honored to be here. Um, Heritage is a... Uh, uh, it's a, every time I've come it's a very rich uh, theologically rich uh, really gracious church um, that is filled with a lot of mature believers so it's refreshing um, and and just encouraging to be here so um, before we jump into kind of the talk I uh, just wanted to pray uh, again um, and really make uh, make tonight uh, Jesus focus so um, if you guys just pray real quick um, Lord, thank you that, uh, that, God, you've given us your word, uh, your, your Holy Spirit-inspired word. To encourage our hearts, Lord, it wasn't written to us, but it was written for us, for our instruction, encouragement. Um, Lord, I pray uh, that I would just be a conduit of what you want to say to your people, um, your children, uh, your church. Lord, this is uh, its a great honor. Um, but God, we are all here to meet with you, uh, including me. I want to experience you. I want to um, grow in my knowledge of you tonight. And so I pray that you would, uh, you already have things you want to say to your people. I pray that you would help me to get out of the way and, uh, and to just speak uh, to your kids. So we love you. We praise you. Uh, we thank you for Jesus uh, in whose name we pray. Amen. Um, <clears throat> so i got uh, got to look at or listen to the the uh, first two talks on Ecclesiastes uh, the one that Sam did was a great uh, foundation for for the book um, as well as Jeff's Ecclesiastes for me has always been that um, that book of the Bible. I don't know if you're kind of like me. Uh, there's a lot of books that I love. Ecclesiastes has kind of been the daunting one, uh, for me. Um, it's always like in my devotions, you know, all right, uh, flip just got done with Proverbs. Uh, great Ecclesiastes going to first John, I guess. So, um, it, it's just one of those books I haven't really known what to do with. So when Sam asked me to, uh, to preach through it, I kind of had to face it head on. So it, it's a, it's a great book, um, with, with a lot lot of practical implications. Um, but just to recap kind of what uh, Sam and Jeff have already laid down as the foundation, uh, we're dealing with a book written by a guy that uh, has more resources, more influence, more power, more riches, more responsibility uh, than any of us can really imagine. Um, and so for uh, in, in light of that, I want to take a snapshot look at Solomon and Ecclesiastes in the context of the whole storyline of the Bible, which is ultimately pointing to Jesus. So how does Ecclesiastes fit in light of of the whole gospel? Um, So we're going to go kind of look at four lenses, um, and and we're going to camp on the topic of work. Um, So if you remember the kind of whole chapter one of Ecclesiastes is pretty depressing uh, at times and and very, very, uh, you know, kind of pragmatic, pessimistic, very real uh, and raw. Um, we get to chapter two and it's, uh, kind of the first half is all about the, um, really meaninglessness of, uh, of pleasure, self-indulgence, and then wisdom. Uh, and then we get to this topic of work. So, um, before we jump into Ecclesiastes, we're, we're going to look at, uh, kind of work and how does the gospel impact our work, um, It takes up a significant amount of of our time. Um, And part of the reason I think that Sam wanted me to touch on this topic is, I'm not a pastor so I'm not preaching every week. I don't uh you know I, I, we serve at a church. My wife and I serve at a small church. Now we were at Mars Hill Portland um for for a season but um I'm in the marketplace uh like many of you. So, you know, when it comes Monday, uh I'm going back to the office uh like many of you and uh, the question that has been lingering on my heart for many years is uh you know, I love Jesus. I want to serve Jesus. I'm I'm fired up about the kingdom um But I've got to put food on the table. How does Jesus uh, relate to, you know, the projects I have to work on on Monday? So I want to talk through kind of that that topic, um, but we'll look biographically. So I'll give you a little bit of snapshot of my story. Um, Then we're going to talk uh, at work theologically. Uh, What does God say about work? Uh, We'll look at uh, work... work culturally and we're going to look at work practically Uh, so those are kind of the four four uh, lenses that we're going to look at and uh, i'll just start with kind of kind of my own story so um grew up uh, in grants pass actually um, and uh, and was adopted by my grandparents, um, and didn't grow up in a in a Christian home uh, necessarily, uh, but was uh, very involved with uh, with youth group uh, from a young age. Ultimately, met Jesus when I was about sixteen years old, uh, in in high school, and everything changed, uh, in, in my motivation, my desires, every, everything changed. Um, and, and because of that, uh, you know, we, I was then 17, then 18. Well, I had to start thinking about college and I had to start thinking about job and I had to start thinking about career. Uh, and I don't know if this is a kind of natural thing for young guys that meet Jesus, but my first inclination was, well, I love Jesus. I Guess I'm going to be a pastor, right? Um, so I uh, so I really heavily sought that uh, that that road. I met with a lot of pastors. Uh, went to conferences. Tried to really understand what that what that looked like. Uh, and interestingly enough, the more I learned uh, kind of about being a pastor, the more my heart uh, was starting to become uh, geared towards business. Um, and so uh, eventually went to SOU uh, to get a business degree. Uh, Uh, Got two years in, uh, met this magnificent woman who unfortunately couldn't be here. We've got two babies uh, at home uh, that it is their bedtime. So we didn't want to push it, but, uh, met my wife. We got married, uh, two years into college, got pregnant on the honeymoon. So, um, we had a beautiful five-year plan that lasted five minutes. And, uh, and, uh, and so I had to pull the eject button on college. Um, and I had to get the first well-paying job that I could feed a family with. So, uh, ended up, um, I, I was at Goodbean, uh, for a little bit, but had to eventually, um, you know, put food on the table. So went up to Portland, uh, doing an outside sales job for, for a pretty large company. Um, and then, uh, about a year ago on March, uh, 31st, um, got an opportunity to work for, for the tech company where I'm at now. Um, so business is, is really, uh, my focus. It's where I, I really thrive. It's where I really, um, I really Nerd out, uh, like just like Sam does on on kind of worship music stuff, uh, how Jeff does on on really theology and and you know the Bible. Uh, I love the Bible, love theology. Um, I'm just a nerd when it comes to like. Statistics and data and finance and that weird stuff. Um, so, some of you are are like that. You love Jesus, uh, but you've also got interests in in kind of the marketplace. So, really, um, I wanted to talk to you uh, and and answer hopefully some of the questions that you've had um, about how how Jesus interacts with with your work. Um, so that's where I'm at now. And my wife and I, uh, like I said, we were at Mars Hill, Portland, uh, until things transition there at the beginning of 2015, and we're now serving, uh, and then I'm working, and then like Sam said, I launched a website uh, to kind of teach people how the gospel uh, impacts their work. So that's where I'm at. Um, I am as average, he said amazing guy, it's funny, I am as average uh, as you can be. I drive a Prius, if you don't believe me, so um, I'm like, uh, you know, a normal guy. So what I want is for you to see how God uh, uses normal people, um, how God impacts normal lives uh, in the world, in the marketplace, uh, and, and we're going to focus on, on work. So that's biographically, that's, that's kind of my story. Let's talk culturally. So because I've been in the business world for uh, a few years now, um, I, I've learned that there are certain cultural defaults that uh, that people tend to fall into. Um, and so before we jump into Ecclesiastes, I just want to really debunk. Some of us are coming in with these. Um, and if that's you, I'm I, uh, sorry I'm not trying to uh, be mean, but um, you're wrong. So um, the, the cultural myths that uh, our culture has really shaped about work uh, are not biblical. And I want to help kind of focus our mind, give a biblical worldview when it comes to this idea of work. So six cultural myths that uh, I have seen uh, in my time in in the business world. Number one is the ladder myth. Um, The ladder myth is... Particularly in large companies, is this idea of a hierarchy, uh, and my job in my organization is to get from the bottom of the totem pole to the top. And so you find guys and gals that are completely motivated by selfish interest, and they're willing to step on people's kind of heads to get to the next promotion, the next position. Um, on the side, I have met with a number of CEOs uh, up in Portland area, uh, Vancouver, probably 50 uh, at this point, just wanting to, to get some insight into their their life, their world, their work week, what it actually looks like, uh, and particularly Christian men um, that, that are also running companies. And so those are guys that are at top of the ladder, uh, we would say. Um, and let me just tell you candidly, honestly, there's a lot that we don't know know about what goes into climbing the ladder. Um, And there's a lot that is sacrificed uh, to get there. Um, So I've met with CEOs who have horrible marriages. I've met with CEOs that have not gone to a kid's game in years, uh, and executives who, uh, really are, are struggling to have any relationship with God because the, the work load is so demanding. Uh, one gal in particular comes to mind. She was, um, at my company before last. She took a job because she wanted to climb the ladder, uh, took a job. She's got two babies at home and a husband. Uh, they live in Seattle. She took a job in Boston Uh, and still wanted to live in Seattle. And so five days a week, she would fly to Boston and she would spend two days uh, on the weekend with her family. just so she could get that next level of promotion, that next level. Uh, so we've seen, you know, just sacrifice after sacrifice, and and I see this all the time. Um, and it's almost an expectation in certain companies that, you know, if you want to be successful, you've got to get to that next le- that next step in the ladder. And if you're not, you're kind of a failure. And that's just not true. Um, the second myth that I've seen is the paycheck myth, uh, and this is kind of twofold. Number one. It's it's the idea that uh, I live for my paycheck. Uh, that's really all work is for me. Um, I, I work my job so I can get paid, so I can do what I really want to do, which you know, in some sense, is is okay, um, but. It takes all the honor and all the focus off of uh, the work and who you're ultimately serving and kind of puts it on on you. Um, the other element of the paycheck myth is the idea that work is uh, only what I get paid for. And uh, somebody told me that the other day. They said, well, uh, you know, I, I really... Um, I-, I love my job, but uh, I just hate working, and uh, you know, th- this is a person that wants to get married and have kids, and said, I really hate working, and I said, you want to have kids? But you don't, want to, you don't want to work, but you want to have kids. Have you seen a new kid? Like, it is It is hard work. It is incredibly hard work. My wife stays home uh, and, and uh, takes care of our two kids. And if she had a salary, she would be blowing me out of the water. Um, she works incredibly hard, faithfully, diligently, and she never collects a dime. Uh, our, uh, our drive down was, uh, was laughing when we got in. We left at 2 o'clock from Portland and got in the other day at 11 p.m. Um, because we've got an 18 month old and a two month old so it was uh, it was a historically bad trip down um, and it's work it's work um, so that's you know that's the paycheck myth uh, the the third myth and this is really prevalent uh, particularly kind of in Christian culture is this myth of top-tier lower tier uh, work it's easy to uh, Really glorify certain careers and and not glorify others, and this is what I was doing when I was really seeking uh, to be a pastor. I, I glorified the position of pastor or missionary or nonprofit worker uh, or something where I was having a direct impact on the kingdom of God that I could tangibly see. That for me was kind of a top tier uh, job. This can look like for some people something that's high paying, something that gets me high notability. Uh, we consider those kind of top tier jobs. And then there's other jobs that are lower tier jobs. And there's this br- just uh, this breed of discontentment until I get that top tier job. And if I'm not making a lot of money or if I'm not making a huge impact that I can see in the kingdom of God, I'm not really uh, fulfilling what God has for me. And so you've got the person that is, you know, scrubbing floors thinking that they're not honoring God because they're not you know, in Africa on the mission field. But the truth is that God's mission is not particularly in Africa. It's wherever he has you. Um, so, so I've seen this, uh, prevalent though in, uh, you know, in, in kind of the church world. Uh, now being a pastor, what I don't want to do is say being a pastor is, is lower tier because it's absolutely not. It, the, the issue is whatever God has called you is what you need to focus on. And there is no, uh, lower tier. We're and we'll talk about that later on when we talk about kind of the priesthood of all believers. But, um, but, but that's a myth I see all the time. Number four is the, the curse myth. The idea, obviously, uh, that work is part of the curse. Um, nope, it is absolutely not. The thorns and thistles were part of the curse, particularly if you're a man. Uh, but work, as many of you know, you guys are very familiar with, with Genesis 1 through 3. Work was there from the beginning. Work was an honorable thing. It was given to Adam and Eve before sin entered the world. Um, And there was perfect union, communion with God, perfect union, communion with each other, and God gave them work to do. And so work was a beautiful thing. It was an honorable thing. And it reflected the character of God. Uh, and, and so that myth, I see it all the time. Uh, the fifth element, uh, the fifth myth is the I work myth, meaning uh, that work is ultimately only affecting me. Uh, work is about me. Work, uh, it, it, I should be focused on my career, on my development, on my growth. And I'm really the only one that's impacted in uh, in my work, Um if you're married, you know that's not true. Um, you, you absolutely are, are affecting other people, your company, your, uh, other, your coworkers, your, your spouse, your kids, by the vocation and by the work that you choose. Um, and, uh, and work is not about you. Work is ultimately the outpouring of yourself for others. Uh, and, uh, and so number six, the, the last myth that, uh, that I see all the time is the, the no plan, no problem myth. That uh, God is sovereign. He knows where I live. He's got my Facebook profile. He can PM me. He's got my number. Uh, if he wants to give me work to do, I'll wait for him. But I'm not really going to try. I'm not really going to plan. Uh, and and I'll just sort of wait for God to, to show up. Um, and you see that all the time, uh, particularly with, with young guys that... They like playing video games, they like Netflix, they kind of like, you know, leisure more than work, and the mindset is... If God wants me to work and if he wants to, to give me a specific calling, he knows where to find me. Um, and so so we know that that's not true, that Proverbs talks a lot about planning, Proverbs talks a lot about diligence, uh, and absolutely God is sovereign, but you're also going to need to put in work. So wanted to start there. What What is the problem that we're trying to solve? What is the uh, kind of erroneous views that we tend to, to fall into? And, and culturally, those are six myths that I have seen uh, very prevalent uh, in the companies that I've worked for in the research I've done uh, with many of the godly men that I've met with uh, this tends to be a um, a, a, a pattern are, are these kind of six myths so, so that's work culturally talking about work theologically so what, what is the right answer how do we define work what is work in the context of of scripture what does God say about work Uh, This goes all the way back to Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, Work, like I said, began uh, in Genesis 1 through 3, but it didn't begin with Adam and Eve. It begins with God. Um, God, in the beginning there was uh, God. And what we see through chapter 1 and chapter 2 is God working. We see God producing. We don't see God taking. We see God working six literal days, creating the heavens, creating the earth, creating the birds in the sky, creating everything we enjoy uh, and its work. And we know that because it says, then he rested on the seventh day. Uh, So the pattern we see kind of in scripture about work is it begins with God uh, and you're going to need to work and you're going to need to work hard and you're also going to need to rest. That's, that's really the summed up simplified history of work. That's where it all starts. Uh, And everything is good. God ultimately culminates his work by creating Adam and creating Eve and everything's great until chapter three. The reason why work is so skewed, and the reason why work is so hard to understand, and the reason why work is so hard to enjoy, and the reason why uh, work often is tainted is because of Genesis chapter 3. Where in Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve, when they should have been working, were sinning against God. And upon sinning against God, they literally tainted Every bit of the bloodline that would come after them. And so you and me are coming from a tainted, distorted, fallen world that begins in Genesis chapter 3. You wonder why work is hard. You wonder why it fights back. You wonder why there's thorns and thistles with your work. It's because of Genesis chapter 3. And so that's, that's kind of the, the entry point into this idea of, of work. And, and then we move into uh, Ecclesiastes. So you've got uh, the, the storyline of the Bible is you've got, you know, obviously the Jeff and, and Sam talked about it. you've got the different genres. You've got the Torah. You've got the wisdom literature. And, and in the wisdom literature, we've got this uh, really fascinating book called Ecclesiastes, written by a guy who in our day would be something of the, the likeness of a Bill Gates meets... Hugh Hefner meets Tom Brady, like, he had every bit uh, of cultural value that we tend to strive for. There was no resource, there was no thing or person that he could not have. Whatever his heart desired, he could have. Imagine that. That is wild. Some of us strive for influence. Solomon had influence. Some of us are striving for money. Solomon had more money than anybody on the planet in his day. Some of us strive for real estate. We strive for power. We strive for women. I mean, Solomon had all of the things that our culture holds really valuable. Solomon says, I've tasted it all. He's tried sex, he's tried m- marriage many, many times. He's tried uh, you know, money, he's tried pleasure, he's tried food. There isn't a drink he hasn't had, there isn't anywhere he hasn't been. He's had it all, all the experiences that we desire uh, Solomon had. And we're seeing a man who at the end of his life is looking back and really giving a pragmatic, realistic view of, of life. He's an old rich, sinful, foolish guy who at one time started off really well, and he's at the end of his life saying, friends, I have everything you want, everything you're desiring, everything you hold most intrinsically valuable. I've had it all. Um, In the tech world, uh, I cannot tell you how much I run across uh, greed. The big thing in the tech world is... Everybody wants to be a billionaire. So everybody I come across, their big ambition is to be the next Bill Gates or to be the next whoever. Name your billionaire. They want to be on that list. That's what they're striving for. And they give up marriage and they give up kids and they give up life and they give up God so that they can have it, the American dream. They want to, they want to make it. And Solomon's been there. And I remember talking to a guy recently who he had the money, he had really everything kind of culturally that that we would want, and he was so depressed, and he was so anxious, and he was so stressed, and he couldn't figure out why. The big idea is this. Anything in life, anything in life, including our work, apart from God, is meaningless. It is God who gives meaning to the things that we do. And so you got two people that could be doing the same exact work with two completely different motivations. So what I want to do, if you have a Bible, go to Ecclesiastes. uh, We're in chapter 2, starting at verse 18. And we're going to look at a view of work from the guy who's had it all. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18. It's just after Proverbs, just before Song of Songs. Now, again, the first half of this chapter is all about the meaninglessness of self indulgence and pleasure the meaninglessness, the vanity of wisdom. He said, I've had all pleasure, I've had all wisdom, and it all was meaningless. And then he gets to this topic of work, which for many of us is eight to 10 hours of our day, 40 hours to 60 hours, sometimes 80 hours, depending on your your job of work. It takes up the majority of our time, and this is what Solomon has to say. So, verse 18, chapter 2. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Isn't that the truth? Get Guys that spend their entire life building a company, either building it themselves or with a team or they're on the team, they spend their lives building something— to then pass it off to the person that put no work in building it. That's just the way it works. That is the way work is. This also is vanity and a great evil. Verse 22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation or a frustration. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. He says work is frustrating. It's burdensome. You've got to be away from your family. You've got to put in tons of effort. You've got to put in tons of time. In today's marketplace, you've got to compete. You've got to be the best. You've got to be the brightest. And at the end of the day, you're going to pass it off to somebody who didn't earn it or who maybe hasn't put in the same work ethic as you, or isn't as bright or smart. And at the end of the day, Solomon is saying, it's all meaningless. Which is true, dot, 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 apart from God. It is true, apart from God. Now what I don't mean to say is that a non-Christian can't enjoy their work, because they can. I see them every day. People that don't know God, they have no relationship with Jesus whatsoever, and they love their job. They really do enjoy their work. But when it comes to the biggest questions in life, what is the meaning of life? Steve Jobs, uh, everybody here has iPhones, I'm sure has seen an iPhone, was known for always asking this question, what's the meaning of life? And his, he, he went to Buddhism to, to find his answers, but he gave his life to produce a product that we all enjoy, it's it's great, it's changed the game for sure. But the question never fully gets answered. And Steve Jobs is going to die just like we're all going to die. And really, it's a sad picture of work when you look at it in that light. And so it, it, it is easy to get frustrated, it's easy to get, uh, Confused. It's easy to get bitter about work because I spend so much time doing it. But the truth is, work is is meaningless. But Bill Gates really did enjoy his job and he gives a lot of money and he is satisfied in, in his work. But what Bill Gates will never have, what he'll never have, even though he has tremendous wealth, is he will never have Well, I shouldn't say never. We hope he has. What he does not have today is an experiential knowledge of the person of Jesus. That's what it's all about. Ecclesiastes and the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the New Testament is all pointing, not to principles, not to an idea, not to an ideology, not even to a worldview. It's all pointing to a person. And so the issue is not the work you do. There's no such thing as Christian work and non-Christian work. That's not... it's not true. The distinction between a non-Christian work week and a Christian work week, it's really not that different, right? The doctor I go to, he's going to be performing the same operating procedures as, you know, the non-Christian and the Christian are going to do the same exact thing. The businessman, The non-Christian or the Christian, they're going to have the same responsibilities, the same tasks, probably the same schedule. But the issue is, and the altogether deepest distinction is not on the surface, it's completely and utterly in the heart. The storyline of the Bible is about Jesus. We worship a guy who is resurrected from death. That means something. And I believe it's Matthew 12, verse 42. Jesus is talking to a group. Sorry for the, the, uh, don't have the context. But he says, there is something greater than Solomon that's here. And so it's easy to look at Solomon and feel somewhat jealous of the resources, the influence, the power, everything he had. He had marriage, but Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom. He had money, but Jesus says he has a cattle on a thousand hills, right? He had influence, but Jesus has all authority, all power, all influence for eternity. Jesus is a greater Solomon. The ultimate storyline of the Bible is not Ecclesiastes, and it's not Solomon. It's Jesus. So the question we need to ask is how is our work going to be affected by Jesus? And like I said, it's not going to change on the surface but the non-Christian and the Christian will have completely different heart motivations. And one is not better than the other, I can tell you that for sure. But the Christian workweek and the Christian worker and the Christian man or woman that's in the marketplace is motivated by a story bigger than themselves and bigger than their work. And Solomon touches on this in the next verses, verse 24. He says that there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For the one who pleases him, or or sorry, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? That's the question. Apart from God, Who can really have soul-satisfying, confident knowledge of not only my eternal state, but my present loved self, my present loved salvation? Who can have that but the person that's with God, but the person that's in Christ? The Christian worker, the Christian man and the Christian woman is one that is fully aware of their sin is fully aware of their desperate need for a savior. And on the surface, they might have the same interest, the same schedule, the same responsibilities, the same tasks. But their motivation is for the glory of God and for the good and flourishing of other people. And so I've met with, at this point, dozens of men and women in different industries. So I've really sought to answer this. What does this look like practically in the lives of people that are in the marketplace today? So I've met with Christian police officers, I've met with Christian doctors, I've met with Christian lawyers, accountants, CEOs, right? And I've met with pastors. And it all comes down to this, that we're all on mission because God's on a mission. God's on a mission to redeem the world to himself and bring all things, all things, all things to the person of Jesus. Not the principles, not the information. He's bringing the world to a person. And it's that motivation that sets us apart. And and it is in no way a distinguishment where we are greater than. It's an acknowledgement that there's no way we could ever be. Theologically, though, we call this living in the Spirit versus living in the flesh. And so the non-Christian lives their life in the flesh. The Christian is adopted as a son and a daughter and given the Holy Spirit of God to surrender, to submit, and to live in obedience to God the Holy Spirit. And so you can go into the marketplace as a pastor, as a counselor, as a doctor, as a police officer, as a fireman, as a teacher, fully motivated by the love of God where you're at, with who you are, motivated to glorify God and cause other people to flourish. Martin Luther talked about this, I can't find the original source, but Martin Luther talked about this in an idea he called the priesthood of all believers. This idea that there is tier 1 work tier 2 work that is not biblical. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5 says that you and I are now a royal priesthood a holy nation that we have been given because of what Jesus has done and because of who Jesus is we've been given all the authority the royalty and the priesthood that he has. And so you and I, we're not simply just Christians now who enjoy salvation for ourselves. We're now ambassadors in the marketplace. We're now ambassadors in the world for Christ, and that's going to look different for most of us. Some of you are ambassadors, and you're a nurse. Some of you are ambassadors for Christ, and you're in business. You write code. You preach the gospel, and you do worship. Whatever it is, God's on a mission, and we are his ambassadors, and every single one of us, a part of that priesthood of all believers. And uh, and when Martin Luther was describing this, he was essentially saying the, the Christian worker is not Christian because they do Christian things. The person that's making shoes, they're not Christian because they put a cross on them or a Bible verse. They're not Christian, you know, if, if you're making a latte, if you do latte art, John three sixteen, that doesn't make it Christian work, uh, if the latte is terrible, right? Does the work glorify God? And does it? Is it motivated in the flourishing of other people? Paul talks about this in, I believe it's First or 2 Timothy, where he talks about every good endeavor. Meaning anything that you do, you are to do, and we are to do, and I am to do, to bring glory and honor and majesty and exaltation to God. So the work that I do and the motivation that I have? Is it for the glory of God, and is it for the love and the flourishing of other people? Met with a guy who felt incredibly dissatisfied with his work because his work was kinda menial. Um, He would cut sheetrock uh, and move it on down the line. That was his work. Eight hours a day, he'd cut sheetrock, move it down the line, cut sheetrock, move it down the line. That guy is just as important to the kingdom of God and just as part of the mission of God as the pastor who is preaching on Sunday, most likely in walls that were cut by that guy. And so the issue is not the work that you're doing. The issue is who you're doing the work for and why you're doing the work. And so this is all theological, it's all theoretical, and I'm a pragmatist by nature, so I wanted to flesh out what this looks like practically. So, a couple examples. Um, Some of these are are figures that are kind of in the public, Uh, some of them are just friends that I have. Um, First is a guy named Hank Paulson. So this is work practically, looking at a case study. What does this actually look like to love Jesus and to... Do your work. A guy named Hank, Hank Paulson was the U.S. Secretary-Treasurer for George W. Bush in 2008. And his responsibility was to essentially balance the budget for America. Kind of a big deal. Um, 2008 was on the cusp, if you remember, of the financial crisis. The housing market was completely... About to the the bubble was about to burst, and George Bush hired this guy Hank Paulson to fix it. And so Hank's really uh, he's got four huge entities that are about to crush the American economy: Lehman Brothers, uh, Barclays, and some others. Merrill Edge was one of those. And these are all banks that are lending to other banks that are funding businesses that are providing jobs. So just so you see what the trail of influence is, this, this is how the economy works uh, in, in today's market. You got the large banks, the Citigroup, the, the really large entities that are giving to the smaller uh, kind of entities who are giving to the smallest entities who ultimately give to you and me if we wanna go start businesses, uh, or you know some of you work for uh, an employer and they're providing jobs, and those jobs depended on this guy. And he got to this point uh, in the process where he was meeting with uh, some really big, big names, you know, Bank of America and, and some others, to try to fix this problem, and he had to make some really tough decisions. He had to essentially pick which one of these large entities, Lehman Brothers, Barclays, Merrill Edge, what, which ones are we going to let die because somebody's got to die. Um, and he was about to go in this meeting present this case, and, uh, and he was completely panicked, freaked out, didn't know what uh, he was going to say. He's a really sharp guy, um, but he was, he was nervous and he was kind of losing it. And he calls his wife. Uh, take note of that, guys. That is always a good move. Um, but calls his wife and says, "Sweetheart, I don't know what I'm going to do." And she didn't know the full context. She just she knew her husband. He said, "I didn't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got to make a tough call. Will you pray for me?" And his wife, very tenderly, very lovingly, uh, but directly, says, "Sweetheart, God has not given us a spirit of fear." But of a sound mind, and quotes, I believe it's uh, first in First Timothy. And he was so encouraged, and the Lord ministered to his heart in that moment. And he walked into the meeting with such a confidence uh, and and really clarity on what he was supposed to do. This ultimately is what led to Bank of America buying out Merrill's Edge, saving millions of jobs. Huge, huge, huge influential uh, influential decision. If America's economy had collapsed, the world economy would have collapsed in that day, the way it was set up. So huge, huge deal. Second guy's a guy named Dan Cathy. Uh, for those of you that follow kind of East Coast companies. There's a company, a brilliant company, wonderful company, that's just moved to the West Coast uh, called Chick-fil-A. Anybody heard of Chick-fil-A? Yes. Best chicken sandwiches in the world. Go to Hillsborough if you want one. They just opened. Um, Incredibly great, brilliant, successful franchise on the East Coast. and the guy that runs it is a Christian, and what he has done with the culture of Chick-fil-A is he has brought in employees, particularly young employees uh, that are, they have no hope, many have been homeless, many have been really cast aside by the schools and the institutions and other employers, and he takes them in, and they've got a streamlined franchise process, so it really doesn't take a lot of skill to learn the job, but once they're in the company, he is focused on leadership development and, and, and growing these people up to be really uh, mature men and women for the gospel. And then he promotes within the company, and he's giving all of these kids that had no hope all these opportunities to take care of their family. Huge, huge, uh, you know, blessing to many, many families. Incredibly generous, gives, gives a lot, gives a lot. A third, uh, third practical example of what, what this kind of looks like is a guy I met in Vancouver. He's a lawyer um, and most recently was uh, CEO of a company. So he worked in commercial law for a number of years. This guy is so on mission for the gospel, but he's so good at what he does in business. Uh, obviously, I'm a business nerd. I was immediately attracted. And, and just being able to talk to him Everything he does from a work context is for the glory of God, and he's had to make some very tough decisions Uh, when it came to law. He he ended up quitting law because it was 70, 80, 90 hours of work, uh, and he, he loves God, and he wasn't being able to spend time with God, and he loves his wife and kids, and he wasn't able to spend time with them. And he moved on to running a company, and the way he runs his company is so refreshing and so encouraging. He he gives generously. He uh, really, really cares about his employees and he does great work, but he spends a lot of time not working so that he can pour into the lives of people that don't really know God. And he's on mission, he's motivated by love, he understands the gospel, but he's in the marketplace. Another guy is a local doctor, uh, and I won't say who he is, uh, but he's a local doctor, been very influential in my life, a dear friend of mine, works at, uh, at uh, the big hospital here, RRMC. Um, he's recently decided to cut down on some shifts um, so that he can spend his time uh, pouring in and developing into the lives of, of others. Um, but he's done this naturally and I had a conversation with him today actually and for his entire career he's worked 40, 60 hours a week uh, and Spent most of his time in uh, in in work really just trying to honor God in one of the most stressful, uh, it's the emergency room. So it's, it's the worst of the worst. Everything that you and I think will never happen to our family, and then it happens, he deals with every day all day. And he's had to learn how to be Jesus to these people who are... On drugs or mentally ill or have uh, you know severely tragic uh, you know things happen um, and he's just uh, he, he he would never tell you this but he's so tender and he's so loving and he so exemplifies the heart of God to these people and then when he's not working he spends his time developing young leaders to eventually send them off uh, to, to do great things so uh, that that's really practical this all culminated for me and this will be the last one in the current company that I'm working at, um, it's a tech company that was bought out by a larger company, and I won't uh, name the name, but um, 90% of the folks that are in our office love Jesus. The guy that runs the office loves Jesus. Uh, our headquarters is across the country, so we kind of are our own little subculture. And the way our office functions is so powerfully motivated by Jesus, but it directly impacts the way we work, and it directly impacts just the culture and the nature of what we do. And every single person there loves what they do, is motivated by Jesus and the gospel, and really wants to serve our organization and our customers. Uh, And I didn't think that that was really possible uh, in the business world, because The business world is all about profit and profitable businesses get horrible raps. But just so you know what this looks like, uh, it costs $7 million to run our office. Um, This year we'll do $400 million in sales. That's like putting a dollar in a machine and getting fifty-three dollars out. Dollar fifty-three. So, very highly profitable. Um, but the culture and the heart and the motivation is is tangibly about Jesus. And really, we want to serve. Uh, you know, who who we're called to serve. But we're doing it through the medium of commerce, and we're doing it through the medium of money. And we're doing it through the medium of business. Um, and so that's been incredibly refreshing. And uh, and altogether helpful for me. So so here's the question. How's it going for you? When it comes to your work, how do you define work? Is work for you simply what pays the bills? Or do you see work as the outpouring of yourself, the way God pours out himself? Is your heart motivated for yourself? Is your heart motivated for God's glory in the gospel? Um, what we have seen in traditional reformed uh, kind of culture, um, and I very you know tend to tend to go on the reform side of things, but we do great work and great uh, explanation of the deep theological, holistic attributes of God, how magnificent and big God is, and it's a glorious thing and we should continue to do so. But what I wanted to do tonight was hopefully to bring down some of those big theological concepts that we all hold to, we all believe, and we all strive to to grow in our knowledge of the person of Jesus. But what I want is for you to walk away knowing how to influence the place that you work, the work that you do for the kingdom of God. Because it is work for the kingdom of God, no matter what it is that you do. So, My encouragement, my prayer, and my hope is that you and I would leave this place with an understanding of who Jesus is. Understand that the gospel is ultimately what this whole thing is about. It's about bringing the gospel to people, and it's about exemplifying the gospel in our work. And the whole storyline of the Bible and the whole storyline of existence culminates on this person of Jesus. So as you go through the different uh, characteristics of of where Solomon experimented and the things that Solomon experimented with, let it be in the context of, of a personal relationship with Jesus that you and I are experiencing. Let us not get hung up in the principles and the wisdom, but let us get hung up in the gospel. Let us let the the book of Ecclesiastes and the practical, really great wisdom uh, of Scripture culminate in our deepening uh, knowledge, personally, experientially, of Jesus. That's what it's all about. That's what we're here to do. So that's my prayer for you guys. Um, Father, we thank you for everything that uh, you have done for us. And that you've given us work to do, and that in Ephesians it says that we were saved by grace, not by works, but to good works. That is the work that you've given us to do is ultimately to proclaim the good news of the gospel. But we still have to pay our bills and we still have to go into the marketplace. So, my hope and my prayer is that you would speak to the hearts of your people to go into the marketplace or to go into the ministry or to go into the world experientially walking with you and may that flourish their relationships and may that flourish the work they do and may that cause the work that they do to have meaning because it's true that work apart from you it has little to no meaning but work with you is so meaningful and it's so glorious And the fact that we get to exist in your presence to know you, to then love and serve and cause other people to flourish through our work is an amazing gift. And so I pray that you would motivate our hearts by love, you'd motivate our hearts by the gospel, and may we truly grow in our knowledge of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Mm -mm. Thanks for listening. For more content, visit engineeredworkweek.com.